Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Ken Stiawan from Melbourne University's Asia Institute and today's podcast is about civil liberties. While in recent years state-sponsored violence appears to have taken a step back, there have been increasing cases of intercommunal violence contributing to the restriction of civil liberties. What rights have come under attack and who is responsible for these violations? To what extent is the violence that has emerged different to what we have witnessed previously? How has civil society responded and what prospects are there for positive change? Here to talk about these issues and more is Dr. Budi Hernawan, a research fellow at the Abdurrahman Wahid Center for Interfaith and Peace at the University of Indonesia. Budi, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you. Budi, you have followed um, very closely the development of the room, I suppose, for civil liberties in Indonesia. Now, if you look back on the past year, could you maybe, maybe we could start by you know, just mentioning a couple of these cases where you feel that there's less room for civil liberties? Yes, I think uh, starting from, let's say, civil and political rights um, uh, for indigenous communities, and they, they found limiting space to express themselves as indigenous peoples in, in various areas. We did research on uh, how number of indigenous communities express their religious identities and they found it extremely difficult to, to be able to be recognized by a larger community, their neighboring community, the mainstream. And uh, it's, it's getting difficult now because the, the coming uh, regime of computerized and digitalized uh, computer system of your uh, IDs registration. So by having this digital system and uh, let's say centralized uh, national IDs, then the system already only accept uh, for its identities those who were in the mainstream, like six religions, for instance. So those who are beyond that are not recognized as religions. Uh, <coughs> that's one thing. Second thing, for Muslim minorities, for Islam minorities, it's even more difficult because the they identify themselves as Muslims, but for majority Muslims, they are not considered Muslims for various reasons. Not only that, in the past, they, let's say, during New Order, because may, maybe we were living under uh, repression for political reasons, and the army uh, had a very strong control, then <coughs> Minorities uh, did not encounter so much uh, resistance from their own neighbors. Now, Muslim minorities like Ahmadi and Shia communities have experienced so much um, attacks from their neighbors. Um, <coughs> and uh, to our surprise, the let's say the law doesn't really protect them. So, the police and state actors who are supposed to to provide uh, 
legal protection uh, have even been part of, of the attacks and actively target them. Um, you can name it the Ahmadi community in Lombok. The had been evicted from from their communities and now they live way outside their hometowns. Uh, <coughs> in the area of uh, freedom of expression, the same thing uh, happened with Papuan's community. Uh, they, whenever they want to raise their political identity, they immediately been target, targeted by, by by the police and by state actors. Um, similarly, if you talk about those who have different sexual identities, they're even worse that the government publicly and repeatedly, officially, you know, target them to, to stop and to attack them and uh, to well, even to prevent any other agencies, either national or international, to work with them and to to help them uh, build their identities. Freedom of media, for instance, has, has been limited to. It's hardly mentioned now, but the National Co Commission on um, Broadcasting, they, they impose such a censorship based on religious uh, arguments and moral, moral arguments. For instance, when uh, we had national uh, sports events, and when there's a swimming game, everything there is blurred except your heads. So <laughs> people were furious, but now if you use uh, religious and moral arguments, it seems to be that the, the many many people feel that's appropriate, uh, regardless was the objects of the censorship, and there's no legal reason to to do so because there's the the, the authority to do censorship has long gone. So in those kind of areas that we can identify, um, in the area of uh, let's say economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, land grabbing is getting more and more uh, issues in various parts of Indonesia, particularly if you have um, natural resources in down under your, your home, then you can be easily get affected and nobody will protect you. Um, so, we live under different pressure. Uh, daily life, you have kind of uh, atmosphere that limits your uh, expression uh, to express yourself, either your religious identity, either your um, political identity, either your sexual identity, or non-religious identity is even worse. You can be targeted by broad uh, society. Um, so this is what I call a shrinking space. Uh, it didn't happen like 10 years ago. People are more relaxed with differences, diversity. But it's been going kind of deliberate uh, 
and active and proactive strategies from different parts of the society, uh, particularly in Java, I guess, to limit diversity, you should follow the mainstream. So you've just described that there have been deliberate actions to restrict a wide variety of rights. There's also that broader theme of identity and efforts to limit expressions of identity that fall outside of the mainstream. Who is responsible for those attacks on civil liberties that you've just spoken about? Yeah, I think uh, you can identify both state and non-state actors. Uh, in regards to state actors, um, the government uh, doesn't actively protect the rights of citizens if things happen against them. For instance, in, when there's attack on Ahmadi community in Western Java, uh, the local uh, authorities uh, did not provide any help. The police even uh, charged the, the victims and put them in jail. Same thing with different uh, religious minorities group in this neighboring area. Um, that's one issue. Another issue is that non-state actors like uh, fundamentalists, uh, Muslim, the radicals, they actively target various different uh, communities uh, whom they considered uh, against their own values, although the I said the largest Muslim organizations, Naratul Ulama and Muhammadiyah, never, never, ever sort of uh, impose or endorse such things. Other non-state actors are corporations, um, either broadcasting corporations or mining companies, and they, they target, uh, well, of course, they, first of course, they to try to uh, produce profits as much as possible, but in unethical ways. Um, so they don't consult uh, locals, for instance, when they want to build a particular uh, company there, or manufacturer, or industry. More and more broadcasting corporations uh, work for the uh, interest rather than public interest. Companies will produce news and and uh, broadcasting that reflect who they uh, work for. So this this kind of actors that we can identify in 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 Papua, for instance, uh, state security actors actively target Papua students who were very active in expressing their, their political identities, uh, regardless of um, legal ground that they have, actually. That your, your public expression is guaranteed under uh, Indonesian constitutions and uh, domestic laws, but the police simply ignore them. Civil liberties are thus restricted by societal groups, but also often with either the direct or indirect involvement of state actors. 
Where does the violence actually come from? Sometimes it is argued that certain groups are trying to assert themselves, or even that it is a return of the authoritarian new order, hinting at some kind of continuity. But earlier you said that the violence in Indonesia is very different. Can you explain that? How is it different? I guess now, in, in, in the past, during the new order, you saw that the, let's say the state had let's say, full control over political spheres and economic spheres and many different public areas. And then the non-state actors had limited uh, roles on that. Of course, if they, they're part of the game, then they had uh, more significant roles. But now the, the dynamic since uh, reformacy changed very much. Non-state actors had more freedom and we have more power um, in various ways. So, so non-state actors, non-government organizations, either in numerous areas, environmental and religious freedom, on including those who operate uh, you know, against those freedoms. The forms of violence have changed. Um, it's more interpersonal and communal uh, conflict and violence rather than state-sponsored violence. Of course, uh, this one has not completely gone, but it's multiple uh, levels and multiple forms of violence uh, have occurred uh, since Reformacy. And non-state actors have more role on that either in promoting, either in extending, either in using different arguments. And in Java in particular, um, religious and moral arguments have been used more and more to uh, blame others, uh, to demonize others, and to attack those who call the other. You are arguing here that the contestation of civil liberties is almost inevitable with a wider variety of non-state actors that have emerged in the reform period. That diversity of civil society is, of course, a good sign of a democracy, but as you just mentioned, it can also play out differently. Much has been said about the rise of Islamism in Indonesia, and you earlier mentioned attacks on Islamic minority groups such as the Ahmadiyya and the Shia, and just now the use of moral and religious arguments to restrict the rights of others. What role do you think Islamism plays in that process? I think that's one element. Another element is that uh, law enforcement uh, is not that strong. In the area, the issue of corruption plays a, a significant role in undermining the effectiveness uh, of law enforcement and government. Do you have an example lives. of that in, in terms of the, some of the cases that you've just mentioned? In the case of uh, Ahmadiyya being attacked in, in, in Western Java, just on the culture of uh, corrupt within the police force, then the <coughs> first uh, the issue doesn't give you much uh, leverage if you protect the minorities there. 
and you are under strong pressure of, from the majority, uh, at least those who claim to be, um, that this particular community should be should be evicted from the from the place because of various reasons. Then the police has not um, has not had any intention to uh, to use the law uh, to to protect the weak or simply to to fulfill their jobs. A few weeks ago, Jokowi started in, uh, doing you know uh, addressing well, petty corruption within every common uh, department, including the police. Um, we've, we've seen already a number of cases that police have been arrested, police officers. So it's a, it's a sign, but we'll see, uh, because it's a corruption is entrenched. Now, if we, from, from this situation, kind of move to um, how um, civil society has responded to um, these occurrences. Yeah, I think the what we see in uh, in Indonesia that the civil society is remain or remains um, vibrant. For instance, to fight back the the current uh, move to use religious language to attack others. Uh, for instance, we. We just heard uh, the declaration, the declaration of Santri um, in around around Jakarta and uh, Western Java to promote uh, peaceful and fair elections without religious or racial arguments. Mm. Um, among journalists, um, Sajuk, this is a, an NGO in Jakarta specializing on and uh, peace and uh, objective uh, coverage. They promote, uh, let's say, plural, pluralism and uh, civic journalism and transparency uh, as an as an counter arguments to arbitrary censorship from the, the National Commission of uh, Broadcasting. On uh, religious freedom, uh, it's been going various movements in different places. Um, mostly Java Center of this stage, uh, of this issue, but has been expanded to South Sulawesi and Makassar, for instance and West Kalimantan, for instance. Then uh, they don't want to see, um, you know, Islam has been used by certain groups to blame others. So this kind of movements reflect that uh, civil society um, organization in Indonesia from different areas remain uh, critical um, and in a number of places like like Samarang, the, even the, the, the chief of police of Samarang uh, publicly uh, said 
decided against the those who want to attack Shia community there that uh, is, is protected under protected by the law. Um, so this kind of examples uh, illustrate that we we are in the, in the middle of uh, very dynamic and fluid power relations. In that context of what really is, as you say, a struggle over power and freedom, the role of civil society campaigning for liberties and diversity is very important. Now, how do they get their message across, especially in a situation where, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, mainstream media and broadcasting companies often do not serve those interests? Generally, the, the main figure that they use is social media. Um, so social media, particularly Twitter, is very active uh, in major cities in Indonesia. They remain um, using conventional type of media communications like demonstration, mobilization of people, uh, the conventional media with printing media and electronic media. Now, I'd like to hear what your opinion is on these social media campaigns. If I look at them, there is an obvious use of hashtags. For example, one that became widely used on Twitter was Papua Itukita, or We Are Papua, which really seems to aim to engage a wider and younger audience across Indonesia. But doesn't that also represent a certain class of activists? How much in tune are they with the people who are actually affected by these cases? Mm. From my experience, the, the use of Facebook is very much everywhere and everybody's business, um, regardless of your, your, your background, uh, social background. Because I mean. um, it's different from, let's say, here that people use mobile computers. Um, I think in Indonesia across the board, people prefer using mobile phones to mm-hmm. to communicate. So they have a lot of uh, group chattings and uh, Facebooking and others uh, through through your mobiles. Also, they they use YouTube quite a lot um, for all sorts of campaign for those who promote pluralism or for those who promote fundamentalism. So the so it goes both ways. Really. Exactly. Yeah. So social media plays an important role for civil society actors from both sides to get their message across. I suppose their ultimate aim would be to influence those in power and to move on to the last part of this podcast. You've often argued that the state stands back or even actively pushes the limitations of civil liberties. But in some cases, state officials have spoken out for the protection of minority groups. You mentioned briefly the chief of police in Samarang. Can you expand a little on that? And are there any other examples? I think the, in the case of Samarang, the, the chief of police there uh, basically protected the Shia community to celebrate the uh, religious day um, against those who try to stop them uh, and the, the basis of the police action is simply to enact the law because this is legal 
is nothing to do with that. The, anyone is protected by the law in the religious uh, celebration. So it is the the duty of the police to to protect innocent citizens uh, to fulfill the let's say to express their religious identities. That's uh, one example and. Komnas Ham is Indonesia's National Human Rights Commission. For various reasons, uh, some critics and skeptics remain, but I think they, they remain also committed uh, to promote the protection and fulfillment of, uh, of the rights, of human rights of Indonesians regardless of your identity, uh, uh, background, your education background, and your ethnic background. So this perspective uh, that everybody has equal rights and equal space within Indonesia uh, now has become a contentious uh, space. And, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's very dynamic. So those who promote the idea of majority-minority perspective have their own uh, followers. On the other hand, those who remain committed to protect the core values of Indonesia, of being Indonesia, um, remains there and remain strong. Um, now the role of government and the role of the state uh, is at stake the bureaucrats, with the politicians, with the uh, army, army and police personnel are committed to, the, to the, the values or not. So there are different responses from within the state and certainly some representatives are prepared to speak out to protect minorities even when this can be politically costly. As a final question, can you see any developments that would favour more positive responses from state representatives towards the protection of civil liberties? Within the police force, it's, it's a matter of leadership. Um, this is hierarchical um, structure. If the leader, if their leader say, says one thing and impose it very clearly, that it will take effect within the within the police organization. Same thing with, within the government, within the, the, the military organizations. The question is whether the national council and, and national parliament, a local council and provincial and government levels uh, are able to to represent the diversity, because uh, as you suggest, as in democracy, you know, it depends on people votes. But this uh, composition is also maybe not controlled, but influenced largely by their national leadership in political parties. Budi, thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Budi Hernawan of the University of Indonesia on Civil Liberties. 
The next Talking Indonesia podcast, hosted by my colleague Dave McRae, will be available on the 17th of November. And a reminder, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast series at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Many thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.